Good evening, everyone. Welcome into the Sokol Snipers podcast. I'm Matt DeMarinas from whiteandbluereview.com. And tonight we got an NCAA tournament preview pod for to run down everything with the Big East. They got five teams in the NCAA tournament this year, so a lot to touch on. And to help me do that tonight, uh, women's hoops must follow. Um, does a great job covering the sport, covering the Big East, uh, breaking things down on the analytical side, which I'm a sucker for. Is uh, Megan Gower from her hoop stats? What else? What else? Are you you got a couple websites to your your credit, don't you? What else should we? Yeah, her hoop stats, <laughs> and then also the UConn blog, UConn women, women's basketball weekly cover UConn specifically. So watch a lot of Big East basketball in person. Yeah, for sure. How long have you been covering uh, UConn and the sport in general? What do you think? I started back in, I have to like think about it now. It's been long enough that I don't know it off the top of my head. I think it was back in 2018, like after the Final Four in 2018, then I really got started, so... Okay. Somewhat okay. recent, but not that recent anymore. I guess that's like five years. <laughs> I know the years all blur together. I started in 2012, so yeah. We so we've we've covered some biggie hoops in our day, huh? We're not quite <laughs> old yet, but we're getting there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like like I touched on earlier, there the biggie's got five bids this year. It's the most since realignment, and obviously having UConn back is. And it makes it a multi-bid league year every year, pretty much, because they're going to be an automatic for the foreseeable future. And I don't know. I, I you know, it's just to just to really briefly before we get into the matchups that we're going to break down tonight. <clears throat> it felt like this was brewing. You know, they got four teams in last year, uh, a couple, and then you saw Seton Hall make a decent run in the NIT all the way to the championship game. Cat, I think, won a game in the NIT as well. So they, and then you looked at how much every team was kind of bringing back in terms of their cores and and how much experience they were going to have this year. And then they scheduled according to that in the non-con and beat some tough teams and like you got the collective net of the league up. So I guess my first question for you, Megan, is did did everything kind of play out the way you saw it potentially playing out when you looked at? how these teams performed in the non-conference and how everything lined up once Big East play got going. Did you feel like five bids was was on the table for the league going into basically January? Yeah, I thought so. I thought we saw it kind of really early this season. You had the non-conference wins for Creighton with like the South Dakota road trip, some of those big wins that they picked up. Marquette with their big performance down in the Bahamas over Thanksgiving weekend where they made it to the championship game of the Battle for Atlantis. And they had to win over Texas back then. So uh, St. John's with that really good start, even though, you know, they trickled off a little bit in conference play and maybe that was expected considering who they beat in that their start to the season, but they still, you know, didn't lose any games. So I think we saw really early on this year that the Big East kind of made a statement through the non-conference play and was looking like a better league. And yeah, some of these teams beat up on each other some during conference play, but they got the five in and I think that's, that's a good sign for the league going forward too. Sure, because I think when I look at look at especially with the COVID year, there's still some eligibility left for some of these teams. So it's not, it's not like this year was hinged with you know hinged upon a whole lot in terms of this is must make or break for a lot of these teams. I think a lot of these teams can bring back a lot of their core players to make runs, even even in the years to come too. 
here's the thing. Here's the question I have for you as someone who covered UConn in the AAC before they came back to the Big East. They just ran rough shot through that. League. I mean, they it was like they didn't lose any games and none of them were really all that competitive. I think you would say maybe South Florida and Central Florida were teams that could push them, maybe make things a little bit interesting uh, in, in the AAC run. Coming back to the Big East, was there apprehension in your mind? Did you think the league was going to challenge UConn as much as it has you know, since they returned, I know they obviously have some major, major injury misfortune in that regard, but that has maybe brought them back to the pack a little bit sooner. But do you feel like did you feel like coming in when UConn came back to the league that this was going to elevate their status too because of how much better the league is, maybe compared to the competition they were facing in the AAC? Yeah, I mean, I thought regardless of like, I mean, I think the league has grown maybe faster than I thought it would over the last couple of years. But I think regardless, it was going to be a massive step up from the American. I mean, to the way that UConn ran through the American, no team should ever really be able to do that in a conference. And there really truly was no competition for them in that league. And I think, I mean, that was a result of it being largely a, a football decision in a lot of ways. Sure. But um, going into the Big East, there was already... I think an improvement regardless of kind of how the league progressed over the first few years with UConn being back. But then I think on top of that, we've seen a growth in the league. I think, I mean, the run that Creighton made last year made a statement mm. and I think a lot more respect has come to the league, even though I thought it was good last year, but maybe people didn't catch on until they made the tournament runs that they did. But I think that, you know, the way Villanova has played with Maddie Seacrest and having her on the floor has made a big difference. You've got, Anissa Moro at DePaul. So you've got now these big recruits that have come in too and kind of been able to, I mean, you've got three players that are on the All-American team in the Big East. Yeah. So I think that's that's really solid growth from this league. For sure. Uh, does this, you know, I, I, I think a hot topic of conversation was the coaching job that Gino did this year. Considering this is probably one of the harder conference titles he's had to win in quite some time, you know, going back to realignment, they didn't really have to sweat to win conference titles in the AAC. So maybe going back to that last year of the Big East before everybody kind of split apart, where do you fall in terms of the coaching staff's performance at UConn in how they were able to just stay on top one more time? through what has probably been the toughest conference site they've gone through in, in the better part of a decade. Yeah. I'm honestly shocked that Gino is not one of the 10 finalists for the coach of the year award. Yeah. After. That's a little weird, right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the success in conference play. And I think in the non-conference too, that this team has managed to have through the number of injuries that they've had this season, like easy fun, of course, highlights that, but there's with the dorky U-Haas injury, Earlier in the season, there's Caroline Ducharme has missed time. Nika Mule has missed time. I think everyone except for well, yeah, Edwards. Edwards has been wearing a mask. Yeah, been wearing a mask all <laughs> yeah. year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, everyone except for her, Lou Lopez, Senegal have not put like have missed at least a game. So it's just sort of like unprecedented level of I think injuries and then everything Gino has gone through. I think personally on top of that with the death of his mom in the middle of the season and mm-hmm. the way Chris Daly was able to kind of step in there. Um, the coaching staff's job this season, I think, has been phenomenal for this team to be able to pull it together to win a Big East regular season title and a Big East conference title, despite all of that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think UConn has gotten, and honestly, like that's one of 
there wasn't much to debate about the Big East with regards to its postseason outlook. I guess the two things that were probably up in the air were, one, would St. John's make it? Because they were firmly on the bubble based on what you mentioned earlier. Their non-conference schedule wasn't strong enough to impress anybody in the committee's eyes. So every all the work they had to do in building their resume came during conference play. And the other part of it, too, was UConn's resume had to be one of the weirder, not just not on paper, but had to be one of the weirder teams to analyze because they've had so many people in and out of the lineup that who who are they is a really hard question to answer because you just don't know who to bank on, right? And I but I I, I the one surprise that I thought was interesting and why I'm not really like I just didn't feel like I didn't have a whole bunch of complaints about what the committee did this year in terms of where they put people and where they see the people. I felt like for the most part there's not a whole lot to to ring alarm bells off, but I'm really surprised that UConn did not get a one seed based on their strength of schedule, their resume on paper. And then when you factor in, like, I guess the things that you would say, well, they lost here and here, the Maryland loss, they didn't, they literally didn't have a point guard. They had an S Betancourt running yeah. <laughs> like most of the one that day. And that hasn't happened since So that they didn't have Nika. They didn't have Dorka. They didn't have AZ for that game. And it was a competitive game on the road against a you know a team that was com- competing for a one seed at the end of the year. So I thought that loss. I, th- I think on paper UConn got dinged, and the context wasn't put in their favor because their sch- strength of schedule was the best in the country. Their marquee wins dwarf everyone except for anyone else who's in that one seed conversation. Were you surprised they got? Put on the two line. I know it just really doesn't matter. I think it's weird. Yeah. That there's so much debate about who gets the one line because they're not playing home games in the second weekend anyway. But were you a little bit surprised that they got dropped to the two line based on their body of work? I wasn't necessarily surprised because I think we've maybe seen UConn drop to the two line in a, a handful of years in the past couple few True. tournaments where like they've been in that debate of the last one two they kind of always end up in the two if there's a debate so not necessarily surprised but I do think when you put the resumes on paper next to each other like there was a very clear case for them to get that last one I think if you look at Stanford versus UConn's resumes you can they both have five losses you can pretty much like equate each of their losses I think like they both have the South Carolina loss Mm -hmm. um UConn has that Maryland loss you could say Stanford's like Utah loss is similar caliber mm-hmm. team mm-hmm. then you've got UConn Notre Dame Stanford UCLA those are pretty equivalent got the, the Stanford has the loss to USC could equate that to the Marquette one and then the St. John's and the Washington losses are pretty similar so it's basically the same resume with the exactly. difference of one team had all of their players available in every single one of those games exactly. <laughs> and one exactly. did not so yeah. I thought UConn had the better case, but I'm like not necessarily shocked that yeah. they didn't end there. <laughs> yeah, the trump card for me was like you said, all the losses are you can draw parallels to them from a from a resume standpoint, like the quality of opponent they're losing to. The trump the the difference is a player availability for UConn was much different than it was for Stanford, and then the other side of it too is UConn's wins were much more impressive than Stanford's were. So I felt like. Mm-hmm. 
I, I didn't think it was a debate, and I'm surprised that it ended up the way it did. That's the only qualm I had for the Big East. Did you have any other? Like, were you surprised Nova was able to stay on the four? Were you surprised Creighton got to a six? Were you surprised uh, say, or Marquette ended up being a single-digit seed? Like, I feel like none of that really surprised me. I thought Marquette's non-conference resume was deserving of a of a single-digit seed once they paired it with the win over UConn in non-conference play. And then I I thought Nova is a deserving host. And like St. John's, you know, when you looked at what they did throughout the whole season, an 11 seed seems right for them playing game or not. Like, did, did anything else stand out to you in a surprising way, good or bad, from seeding perspective for the Big East? I don't think so. I think once we saw Nova on that four line in the first reveal, and like, I mean, they never lost anyone other than – UConn since that first reveal so I thought they were gonna stay there so that wasn't surprising to me at all um Creighton too I think with the six they had a better end to the season there they had that kind of dip in the middle that lost to Providence that probably dropped them down but then everyone else did things like that too throughout the season so right. yeah ending on the six there agreed with Marquette too I don't really know why people were calling Marquette a bubble team I was like I thought they were firmly in the so field weird, right? between yeah. the Texas win and the UConn win I was like they're fine and then yeah St. John's should have been firmly on the bubble and they are end up on the right side of it so that was good I want to throw a, a bone to the Creighton listeners here quick with an outsider's perspective on things because this is a Creighton pod even though we're going to talk Big East matchups here in our next topic but Give me your read on Creighton's trajectory with this core group of players that, you know, hit the Elite Eight run last year in what maybe on paper looks like a year ahead of schedule because most of your nucleus is still on in that underclass group and most of their experience came off the COVID year, which was a lot of pauses, a lot of up and down, not a typical freshman season for a lot of those players. What's your read on where Creighton's trajectory or how Creighton has taken this path to a big postseason run last year, beefing up the non-con this season and and kind of hitting the ground running. And then kind of the up and down they had to deal with in December when that schedule really, really got going with Stanford, uh, UConn, all those games kind of staggered together, Arkansas, and how they ended up this year. What's your read on that from the outside looking in? Yeah, I mean, I think you took a team that – was really good all of last year and should have been higher than a 10 seed to begin with, right? Like, yeah, I don't right. know, like that team was better than a 10 seed team. It's, it was not at all surprising to me that they beat Iowa, which mm. also says something about how I feel about Iowa. But, um, we can go on though at that too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and then I think coming into this year, the expectations were high because they went on that run. It may be mm. a little unfairly high with having to replace the point of guard position. That's always a hard position sure. to replace but they started out really hot so I think kind of the thought of that went away quickly and then they hit the normal bumps that I think most teams are going to hit when you have to replace that position it's generally the hardest position on the floor to have to adjust to a new rotation there um but I think they kind of hit their stride down the, the end of the season here and now with especially with the news on another Dame today and we're going to get to this in a minute but are in a pretty good position to make another second weekend run unfortunately got south carolina draw again so beyond that it's not looking good but exactly at least the second weekend run is they're in a good position for for sure let's jump into these matchups a little bit obviously we're gonna be weird if we touch too much on st john's purdue 
because by the time people listen to this, that result is going to be um, out there and all of our takes are going to be shelved. <laughs> but I guess let's 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 try to dissect it from this perspective. St. John's, you know, that's I, I think it's a really interesting case study in how quickly you can turn around the trajectory of your program. Because last year, it felt like they kind of lost their identity a little bit in terms of who they've usually been as a program. You know, they fall into that playing game. I think they go, you know, they, they lose to Villanova in pretty dominant fashion in the Big East tournament and just kind of fizzle out of a season that didn't really have much much optimism for it right and then to add some pieces some veteran transfers and to hit the ground running with i think they scheduled right even though the non-con ended up hurting their chances at an at-large i think it's important because of what you're coming off of to build that confidence in your group that belief that you can win games and then when you get the creighton in your gym for your first really marquee game of the year and you know you have a lot of belief that you can win games because you haven't lost one yet you get that win, and then all of a sudden your season can kind of take off from there. So what, what was your read on St. John's and, and kind of the path they took from ending last year and what Joe Tardamella did to add some key, Im- key impact pieces to a team that ended up making the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I mean, I think the transfer market in general has kind of changed the game over the last couple of years and a way to, to turn your team around faster than you maybe used to be with, like, having to go through – more of a recruiting cycle or not like having the transfers immediately eligible. So that's definitely like a win for a program like St. John's that you're trying to make that fast turnaround. And I kind of agree. I don't necessarily think their non-conference hurt them as much as it just like didn't do much to help them. Like it doesn't hurt them because I didn't lose any of those games that they shouldn't have lost. It just doesn't like add anything to bolster their resume either. But then, you know, I think that UConn win is why they're, in the tournament without that one they're probably no, not yeah <laughs> yeah for sure 100 um but i think it's a, a great turnaround in terms of just getting the pieces together enough to make it in the tournament this year and even if you don't win a game like i think just being in is enough of a stride forward for the saint john's team this year and then you try to build on that next year and next year you get a win and they could win today if north carolina plays a bad game they could still win two games like it's possible mm-hmm. but i mm-hmm. think even if you don't do that it's a successful season to get in and then try to build on that yeah and i think they're honestly for just them isolated alone it's a big reason why the biggies had the year it did because so i think the, the problem last year if there was one because you got four teams in so i really thought it was another healthy year for the league but you know there was the one of the main moments of march if you will was Kind of Tony Bazella's tirade a little bit at the end of the Big East tournament, saying that the Big East doesn't kind of get the respect it deserves because he felt like his Seton Hall team had been playing really good basketball for the last month and a half of the season and wasn't kind of getting the bubble love that a team that's mm-hmm. usually on a run like that gets, especially when they've knocked off like a Villanova at that point. You know, the debate was all about, you know, what's Villanova without Maddie Segrist? How do we measure, you know, their resume? What's that UConn win do for them? Uh, you know, or do they belong in the field? That was really the only conversation point with the Big East was, you know, Creighton's in, uh, UConn's in, you know, where's Villanova at in this mix? And then is DePaul, is DePaul's slide enough to leave them out or was their, was their body of work enough to get them in? And I think the, the thing that was always a pushback for me on that 
on that rant, if you will, was there's too many anchor weights in the Big East right now. You have so many 280, 300-level teams that your depth isn't there for you to get half the league in the field. You know what I mean? Because you're beating, you're, you're basically guaranteed six or eight wins with that bottom half of the league. I mean, Butler was one of the worst teams in the country last year. That's not even yep. hyperbole. They literally, all their metrics were like, we're watching a 360-level team in the Big East. It's hard to make it when you get past the four spot in a league like that when you have so many anchor weights in it, right? So the, the key for the Big East this year, in my opinion, was how can the bottom come closer to the middle? Because that's when you're going to get your five and six bid candidates, right? So I think, and that and that's where I it leads me into my point about St. John's is St. John's elevating the way they did off of a down year last year, helped raise the profile of the league. Butler making a, a home run higher with Austin Parkinson and becoming just a saltier team. You know, they improved their metrics dramatically. And now they had a long way to climb up, but they improved them dramatically to the point where they were a pretty tough out and, and beating them. You didn't have to beat them by 40 to impress the computers, essentially, right? Uh, Georgetown got better. Providence got better. Um, the only one who really didn't hang in there was Xavier. And even Xavier, for a last-place winless team, they were a tougher out than normally has been in league history when you look at a winless team, right? So, And then you look at the, the coaching decisions that have been made in the offseason now in the immediate aftermath of the season with everybody kind of switching gears. Georgetown's going to have a new coach. Providence is going to have a new coach. Xavier's going to have a new coach. I think the league kind of figured out that like, Hey, the bottom needs to get serious here. If we're going to, if we're going to have to, if we're going to be pounding tables about four or five, six teams belong in the field and the big East is getting snubbed. The bottom has to raise its level. We can't, we can't have 300 level teams in it. And I think St. John's is one of those teams that raised its profile to a degree that allowed the big East to have more, to generate more of the conversation in the committee room as selection Sunday in the year, don't you think? Yeah, I think that helped. I think you saw really from that first reveal when Nova was in the the top four seed lines, like the respect for the Big East that the committee was clearly giving. And I think that's, yes, like St. John's elevating its profile. And then I also think it's the the non-conference slate that teams like Creighton, Nova, and Marquette played and succeeded quite a bit in in the start of the season to say like hey these are really good teams not just in the Big East but in the country so I think that elevated it as well as having I mean a team like Nova that's now what 10th in the AP poll like they've established themselves as a, a top team in the country and then Creighton in and out of the top 25 this year as well so you've got multiple teams that are in that national picture and then like you said the bottom of the league league elevating itself as well is a big step forward. And I think to continue the growth, it's the bottom coming up and hopefully these coaching changes and transfers and things like that will help that process expedite. And then also the top of it, continuing to schedule the way that they did this year. And I think adding teams to that, I mean, DePaul schedules like that usually too, but teams like um, I've seen Hall schedules pretty well too, but like St. John's not scheduling the non-conference they scheduled this year and trying to play more of those teams that now that you've kind of found the success this season, can you build on that with some quality non-conference ones too next year? Yeah. DePaul was big too. DePaul had a, DePaul is another team that, you know, I don't think they're in the postseason. I don't think they went to the NIT, but they're a team that without them and the wins they got in the non-conference 
And where they finish in the Big East, like you look at that and you go, wow, that's the seventh best team in the Big East. And they beat Maryland and Miami. You know what I mean? So it's like you almost have no choice but to say, geez, maybe this league is pretty serious. So that's that's kind of what that's kind of what happened with this league this year. Everyone kind of had a moment up and down, maybe seven deep. And then you realize that, yeah, these are some these are teams that you can't ignore. You know, when you're looking about where to put Villanova, that's all their metrics say they belong as a host. When you look at Creighton, all their metrics say they're a single digit seed. Uh, same with Marquette, based on how they scheduled, who they beat, um, you know, everything that they show, everything that they look like on paper, that's a single digit seed. St. John's belongs in the field because they went to UConn and got a win. They beat Creighton. Uh, when you look at their, they beat Marquette. You look at their, how close they were to knocking off Nova too uh on the road so it's like you it's hard to ignore that when it's all just hitting you in the face it's not just a one-off you know where you got one marquee win at a conference and everyone's trying to beat that team to get a piece of that win you know what i mean which is how it's usually been so i think the league there's a blueprint there for the league to follow in years to come i think and i think it starts with following yukon's blueprint of just like just schedule tough and roll the dice you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, you're going to make your team better one way or another. Whether you hit the jackpot and make the tournament in that season or you build for it going forward. Scheduling tough is never a bad thing. Even if you get embarrassed by some of those teams, you know what I mean? That's never Challenging your team early and often is never going to be a bad thing for the trajectory of your program, don't you think? Yeah, exactly. And then I think once you're in too, like a big part of success in March is not just like, have you been tested in your conference, but have you been tested outside of your conference? Because I think there's a lot to be said about finding ways to win against teams that you don't see three times a year and that you don't know exactly how they're going to play. You don't know how to guard all their players and what they're going to do. Um, and I think we see, I've actually like done the math to like show you that that's true, but I'm pretty sure what we see is like when your team hasn't played, even some of these power conference teams, when they haven't played the non-conference schedule, it yeah. comes back to bite them in March. For sure. 100%. 100%. So yeah, that's the that's really all I want to touch on with St. John's because, like I said, this by the time most of you listen to this, their results going to be in the bank, and we could only look silly one way or the other unless we say something that's <laughs> dead on balls accurate. So, um, let's go to the matchups that are happening this weekend, though. So tomorrow, Marquette's going to kick it off for the league, and really the whole NCAA tournament with that South Florida matchup. And it's funny we just got done, kind of smacking the AAC a little bit. South Florida has been the team that's kind of, that's one of the saltier additions of that conference, right? They're kind of yeah. always a perennial tournament team, you know, in the conversation, if not comfortably in every year. That's a, that's a really intriguing eight, nine matchup. Just when you look at the way South Florida plays, the way Marquette plays, I, I God, it feels like total toss up based on who can impose, you know, their, specific style and get comfortable first right like how do you see that one going down yeah I see it as a coin flip as well I think South Florida is more of an offensive minded team yeah. Marquette obviously very much wants to play you in a 55 to 50 matchup and to be a defensive grind so I agree I think it's going to go down to like 
which style the game gets played. If it's Marquette style, I like Marquette's odds. If it's South Florida's style, I like South Florida's odds. But I think either way, it's going to be a really fun game to watch. And I mean, even if Marquette doesn't get the win, I think it's still, again, like we said about St. John's, is a step forward to be in this year, right? And then hopefully you get yeah. that win. But I mean, either way, if you get that win, you're going to be going home the next game. So For sure. <laughs> 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 the one thing that's in the one thing that's intriguing to me about this matchup, this eight nine matchup, is I, I think back to Marquette's non conference, and I know what what it what the game is gonna look like when you play them, and how the Big East games have looked. But when they've played teams that have been more, you know, up and down, and you know, like to play high position games, and and like like they're gonna play with South Florida. They looked kind of comfortable in those situations <laughs> in the non-conference. So I'm really curious to see which version of them they try to be tomorrow, because I could see them. If I'm if I'm trying to figure out, and this is kind of always the way I assess NCAA tournament matchups is like who has more ways to win, and that's like how you feel comfortable about who's <laughs> who you're ultimately going to pick. I kind of feel like Marquette has more paths to victory than South Florida does. Because I'm not sure South Florida can win playing Marquette style as as much as I am that Marquette can win playing South Florida's, and that's only because I've seen Marquette do it this year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've seen South Florida win playing the way they, that Marquette usually plays. Does that give you any indication in terms of maybe Marquette having an advantage because they've been able to win in different ways this year against high quality competition, or do you see it more very specifically in that coin flip area of who can? Who can get comfortable doing what they do first? Yeah, I still think it's kind of a coin flip, but I, I do somewhat agree with that. I think especially because in the Big East tournament, we saw Liza Carlin be really good for them offensively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't necessarily been consistent. Like Jordan King and Chloe Murata are always really solid offensively. And Liza Carlin is kind of that wild card. And when she's really on, their offense is a lot better when she's not it usually isn't. So if they can kind of get all three going in this game, then yeah, maybe they can keep pace with South Florida, even at a South Florida style game. I I think they need that to win in that game. So I think there's a a path for that win, but I think they have a lot easier path to win if they want to get to play at 55, 50. 100%, 100%. (laughs) Stick to doing what you do. But yeah, I, I think I favor Marquette if I'm picking today based on, um, they just, I think they've proven they have more ways they can win a game. So, um, yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah, next one, uh, the next matchup is obviously the Creighton Mississippi State one. So that's probably what most of the listeners are turning into here for for this for this podcast. But, um, you know, we watched Mississippi State the other night, and I don't think they played well in the first half. I don't think Illinois played played well in the first yeah. half either. Excuse me. And uh, I saw like more of Mississippi State. Mississippi State team that's kind of at their best when they're at their best in the second half because they came out and, you know, they were really, really persistent about getting downhill, getting to the rim, getting to the free throw line, getting the ball to Jessica Carter, pressuring Illinois defensively, making them uncomfortable, making them take rush shots, uh, crashing the defensive glass, getting out in transition. This Creighton-Mississippi State matchup is interesting in a few different ways because it's almost like it's almost like Mississippi State is the polar opposite of Creighton. Like we just talked about the Marquette South Florida one. It feels like we've got another one of those right here because Mississippi State wants to create 
offense with their defense. They want to play through the post, traditional low post. Um, and that's kind of where they're going to try to win this game. And then Creighton's going to try to get the ball, get the game up and down. They're going to try to make Mississippi State guard for a long time, guard, communicate defensively, uh, be attentive to screens and and switching and and cutting and all that. Like, how do you see this matchup going? Because this feels like another one where it's like polar opposites are colliding here. Yeah, I think this one's going to be interesting. I think if Creighton wins this, it's like the harder game to win of the first two for them. But yeah. um, <laughs> for the matchup, like you said, it's very different. And But I think the one thing that might challenge Mississippi State like, is that they focus so much on defense, but Creighton isn't, and I feel like this is weird to say, but they're not like a normal team to guard and that the way they play yeah. offensively is very different. And I think if you, like Big East teams are used to it, right? Because they see it all the time. But I think part of why they like were able to make that run last year is when you're trying to game plan for that it's really difficult when you haven't seen it before Mm -hmm. um so mississippi state's like normal like sec defense isn't necessarily going to work against a a creighton offense so i think creighton has that to their advantage and that it's a very unique style that they play but they've got to make shots i think that's what it comes down to i think a lot of times when Creighton has struggled this year, it's because they don't make shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't make shots in this game, it's going to be hard to win. But if they make their shots, I really like their odds against Mississippi State. Yeah, the one thing about this matchup that I think stood out to me watching Illinois-Mississippi State, because Illinois, in in a lot of ways, tries to do what Creighton does. They go about yeah. it a little bit differently, but, you know, they want to play. They want they you know, they want to bread their uh, butter their bread from the outside and, and mm-hmm. you know, um, that's kind of where their their success has been this season. And I think the one thing that stood out to me is Mississippi State had a lot of trouble when they weren't switching everything. Because Jessica Carter, as as imposing as she is at the rim with you know six foot five and her length and her ability to change and block shots, if you get her out on the perimeter and get her involved in in guard to big actions, she has you know, the, the lateral foot speed isn't there to keep up with that downhill penetration. And that's kind of where Illinois had some success at points in the game was when, when Mississippi State wasn't switching everything and they were making Carter actually have to to make reads and stay with, stay with the, you know, that two-man game, two-woman game. So I think that's one area where Creighton's going to have some chances to, to get Mississippi State's defense scrambling and – I'll be curious to see what their strategy is for that because I think to guard Creighton, being able to switch five positions is kind of the key to it. You know, that's kind of why I think UConn matches up really well with Creighton because Aaliyah Edwards has positional versatility defensively. Um, same with Villanova. Uh, same with Marquette, honestly. Like, that's that's kind of where you see Creighton's offense, offensive uh, efficiency drop in those matchups is because they those those teams defensively have the ability to switch at multiple positions all the way up to the center spot. The thing with Creighton defensively is going to be how can they limit Carter's touches and keep Mississippi State off the free throw line because Mississippi State, that's where they're going to have to score to be successful is they're going to have to get to the free throw line. They're going to have to get the ball inside. But I don't see if they're going to try to have a shootout with Creighton unless they're having an outlier game. That's not their path to victory, right? So can Creighton stay in the gaps? Can they keep that those ball handlers out of the out of the seams, out of the lane, off the free throw line? And can they, you know, put enough of a crowd around Jessica Carter to make her uncomfortable to keep her 
away from the basket and limit her efficiency on her catches is kind of going to be Creighton's path to victory here, don't you think? Yeah, I think the defense is going to have to pack it inside some, and I think you just hope they don't hit the perimeter shots, which isn't a bad strategy because they don't hit a lot, and Carter is kind of their main scorer. They've got what, one other player that reaches, is averaging double figures, so I think that's not a bad way to go about it, and then if you know, they beat you on threes, well, then like that's what happens, but I think yeah, exactly. the odds of that happening are pretty low, so if they, they focus the defensive energy inside and then are able to run their game, on the offensive end, they've got a really good shot coming out yeah. with the win. Both teams and both teams have to play percentages here because the matchup is so different. Like right. Mississippi State's gonna have a tough time matching up with Creighton unless they make them play downhill. And Creighton's gonna have a tough time matching up with Mississippi State unless they play it, make them play over the top. So that's kind of where this matchup is gonna have to be dictated is like both teams are gonna have to take liberties defensively to make the other team do the thing they're most uncomfortable doing. And if they do that, then it's obviously going to be a bad day. But if not, that's that's kind of the path to victory, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, switching gears to uh, Nova and UConn, right? I, I, I'm i not going to lie. I haven't watched much Vermont, and I don't think that's a 15-2 matchup we need to be terribly concerned about. And, that, and, I, and I know people are, like, probably listening and going, UConn struggled with Georgetown this year. They struggled with Xavier. Like, there's been some, there's been worse teams than Vermont that have pushed, that have made UConn sweat this year. The one thing that I kind of see from UConn that just always shows up when it needs to show up is that championship moxie. You know what I'm saying? Like, when it, when they know it's like time to get a, to, to perform, time to win, like, you can't take, you can't just roll the ball out there and, and think you're you're the better team, so you'll find a way to win at the buzzer anyway. I expect UConn to come out and play really well. It's at Gamble. I think they might be smarting a little bit from getting the two seed. Just based on the way UConn kind of uh UConn doesn't have many opportunities to to form grudges, right? They're the <laughs> yes. top dog usually every year. Like they're they're the hunted every year. I think UConn actually has an opportunity here to play with a chip on its shoulder which is weird because they don't usually get in that position. And I, I think they might make a statement out of Vermont. So I'm not sweating that matchup at all. I don't think it's going to be terribly dramatic. Now, I know I'm testing the March gods in that regard by saying that, but I just don't I don't see much of a path for this game being dramatic. Do you? I don't either. I'm not super worried about it. I think, yeah, we saw you kind of struggle down the stretch of the regular season, but I also think when the championship, like you said, was on the line. Exactly. Like they, they turned it around very quickly. Like four days. There was only four days that they had to turn it around from that exactly. bad game against Xavier to the Big East tournament. And they flipped a switch and, I don't have any concerns that with two more weeks to turn things around, that they're not going to even look better. Now that AC FUD is going to be more mm-hmm. integrated. So I agree. I kind of expect them to come out and make a statement against Vermont. Let me ask a follow-up there. Cause that's the one thing I'm, it, it, that's kind of been the million dollar question with UConn, right? Mm-hmm. It was who do they look like in March? What, what pieces do they have available? What's their identity there? What does AZ FUD being back actually change with their team dynamics and how people match up with them because you had you did see that you did see like in the season where like they had to really win games on the defensive end of the floor because the offense was a struggle if teams had 
guarded them a certain way, right, and made them beat them from the outside. What's what's AZ Flood being back do for you? I mean, we saw it at Mohegan, but I kind of feel like there's more there too because AZ was a little bit rusty. What's what does she what does she change for UConn when she's when she's back and and close to that A level? Yeah, I think what we saw at Mohegan is that when she's back, immediately the spacing on the floor mm-hmm. changes because you have to guard her and you have to respect her on the perimeter. And I think that benefited three players. It benefits Leah Edwards and Dorky Uhas in the lane because all of a sudden the defense has to end up giving them a lot more work or a lot more room to go to work inside. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that very clearly in the way that UConn scored in the paint in the Big East tournament. And then it also benefits... Lou Lopez Seneschal because now your best perimeter defender is probably not on Lou and it's on AZ Fudd and that gives her a lot more space to operate on the perimeter and she's also capable of driving inside getting in the mid-range so it opens her offense up a lot more as well and then I think the piece that we didn't see necessarily in the Big East tournament it was that AZ Fudd's shots weren't necessarily falling which is expected yeah, she was yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, they still looked good. They just didn't go in. Exactly. So, Which scares I think me. That, like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how good could they be when they start falling? Um, but I think that's kind of to be expected, right? She, she practiced two days with the team before they started playing in that tournament. That's not a lot of time to kind of shake off the rust. But now she's got, you know, two more weeks under her belt. And I think the way Fod can score from the perimeter is kind of has the way to like change the game for UConn because she can go out there. You saw it in the third quarter against Villanova in the biggest tournament. She hits three threes basically back to back to back. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's an 11 point game that's manageable into a 21 point game. And it's just, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she can do that. But also I think a lot of what we saw from her earlier in the season was is she's not just a three-point shooter. She can score in the mid-range. She can score in the lane. Yeah. There's a lot of other things she can do. She's a really good basketball player as well. So I think those pieces too change for UConn. Yeah. There's no doubt that she elevates their ceiling dramatically, especially the closer she gets to being comfortable. I don't know how much, how close she can get to her ceiling this year. Probably not. Probably, it's probably not realistic to expect her to even come close to that based on the time she's missed. But I think she can make them national championship good. Like I, I, you watch that South Carolina game, and you watch the way South Carolina guarded UConn, and and the way UConn guarded South Carolina, and and yeah, I, I think South Carolina's, especially when you put their two three year run together, this is one of the best teams of all time in terms of their nucleus, not not program wise, but like what they've done together as a group. Mm-hmm. But I, I I wouldn't be shocked if if like a team that's put together like UConn with their ability to play inside and out and and obviously their versatility defensively that we talked about earlier, I wouldn't be surprised if they get them in the rematch if they, if they meet up down the road. Like I wouldn't I would it wouldn't shock me at all. I think there are very few teams who can do that to South Carolina. But if I'm picking if I'm picking matchups that I think South Carolina might have problems with, I think UConn and Indiana are two that come to mind that I'm not sure there are any others, but it wouldn't shock me if UConn got them in the rematch based on yeah. AZ being back. Yeah, I think UConn, Indiana, I would probably throw Stanford in there assuming that they get it to got it together over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. They haven't looked great recently, but I think they still have that potential. Um yeah, I think I don't necessarily expect that like if we got that rematch, UConn would win, but there's definitely a path for UConn 
to win that matchup. Um, we saw how close that game was in yeah. Hartford a few weeks ago without AZ Fudd and also without Caroline Ducharme too. I think that yeah, piece matters right. too. Um, right. So yeah, with the, I think actually after that game, Gino kind of said like, we just didn't make enough threes to win the game today. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be the problem for this team mm-hmm. anymore. Granted, is South Carolina going to let Leah Edwards score 25 on them in the next matchup? Yeah. Probably not, but UConn has, I think, more versatility of options than they did. Last but it time. also it, it would also go to your point as well, and we'll talk more about the the potential uh, second weekend potential of this league in a second. But it also goes to your point about you know Bree Beal guarding Lou Lopez Seneschal in the first matchup is not going to be the matchup in the in the rematch if everyone's healthy. So it changes the dynamic of that game and how it played out the first time. There's not a whole lot that South Carolina can hang their hat on because. Switch the matchups are just changed almost across mm-hmm. the board, right? So, yeah, you might not get 25 out of Aaliyah Edwards, but you're going to supplement that elsewhere, you know, especially in your perimeter attack. So, yeah, I do think UConn right now is dangerous, especially putting them on the two line. Like I said, giving <laughs> UConn any reason to hold a grudge is not normally you have to manufacture that, and everybody kind of rolls their eyes like, yeah, okay, you're UConn, stop. But this year, I think they actually have a point. That if they yeah. if they walk in with a chip on their shoulder, I wouldn't think it's the craziest thing in the world like I would in years past. Yeah, it reminds last... me of that. Oh, sorry, I no, was saying, it reminds me of that. I think it was 2019 when they were the two seed in Albany with like Louisville was the one, and yeah. the, like Nafisa Collier and Katie Luciano said were pretty salty about it. They all had like twos up in the picture when they won the or went on to the final four. Like this <laughs> right. team probably has that vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely feel it because they they have an edge to them in general. So if you give them a reason, it's not not yeah. good enough. Um. The last matchup of the of the you know opening weekend is Villanova Cleveland State. I know that I personally feel like we're at a point with the women's game where we shouldn't take these matchups for granted. But I see Nova as like a twelve point favorite, and I still feel like we're not quite there from the public's perspective. But this Cleveland State team has is really good, and we're talking you talk about groups that have been together for a minute. This is a thirty win team. Uh, and I just don't think they're a team that's going to be an easy out, especially for a Villanova because of the styles. Like you look at Nova, they kind of fall into, they're not totally like Marquette where they need to control pace and possessions because they do have, they do have Maddie and they have shooters around her that can allow them play an up-tempo game and, and go shot for shot with teams. But I think Cleveland State's going to come in with some confidence. You know, I mean, Destiny Leo is a stud, first of all. Like, that's a dangerous, multi-level scorer that Nova's going to have a tough time dealing with. And if you put her at the free throw line, which she gets to a lot, she's nails from there, too. So it's not like you can just take away the three and make her a driver and put her at the free throw line and try to just make her live there. She'll kill you there, too. I, I just like the way this Cleveland State team is put together as a 13 they are they look like a really dangerous 13 to me because they're not Destiny Leo is obviously the main component there, but they've won games without her going off because they have shooters around her. You know, they've got three, four, two or three, four shooters that are capable of getting hot from three-point range to make a defense have to stress about, you know, guarding multiple options on the perimeter. 
And when you look at their facilitators, like there's not really one where if you're like, all right, we locked this up. We basically cut the head off the offense. Um, this is a tough matchup for Nova. I know they got the four. I know they're at home. I know they're going to be hyped. I know that place is going to be packed. I know the Finn is a tough place to win. But this feels like it's for a 13 4, this feels really, really tight to me. Yeah. I think in a vacuum, like Cleveland State is probably one of, if not the best 13 seeds in this field. And if they drew a matchup other than Nova, I think I might have been like, yeah, that's a potential upset. I think where Nova wins out here, though, is just like having Maddie. And I think yeah. in a game like this, there's we're going to get later into conversation and having Maddie isn't enough and they need the other pieces to work too. But in a game like this, it feels like Maddie is enough. Um, I don't think that Cleveland State is going to have an answer for her. And if there are other, if Nova's other pieces don't get going, she might need to score 40, but like we know she can mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. You know what? The one thing that makes me kind of curious about this and I know Maddie and Anissa Morrow aren't the same player, but earlier in the year, and I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I did say that Cleveland State was going to beat DePaul this year just because I felt like Cleveland State's the kind of team that gets slept on a little bit. <laughs> and not only did they beat DePaul, but they beat DePaul with Morrow going for 42 on 55% shooting. So they didn't really shut her down at all. She she cooked, and they still beat them. So that's what makes me think this, this matchup is really intriguing because Cleveland State's played a – elite level scorer and they've survived her going off so it makes me think this game is going to be one of those that you know we're turning on if you're not watching it the whole time you're turning it on in the fourth quarter because it's there to be one for both teams i think that's what it's going to come down to but i do ultimately fall i do ultimately side with you that at the fin with maddie basically playing at the level she's playing at i don't think she's going out like that so yeah if if, if i have to play the odds i think nova's going to get the job done but i do think it's going to be more intriguing than a normal 13-4 would be historically speaking and especially with with the 13-4s that are lined up in the rest of this uh tournament so yeah i think the difference between depaul and nova is that while they both focus on that one player like nova's role players are better than depaul's role players significantly especially when lucy olsen is playing at the level that She's not quite there consistently yet, but much closer yeah. to consistently. Um, I think that or, you know, Dulcie, I thought was really impressive in the Big East tournament. Um, and then, you know, Maddie Burke, when she hits shots, can make a big difference for them, too. So I think their role players are a step above where DePaul's role players were this year. Yeah. So our, our last topic here before we wrap up, I think I just want to kind of run down ceiling and floor for each of these teams uh, obviously not named St. John's because I don't want to hedge anything on that matchup tonight. Um, so for the four teams that are going to be playing on, on Friday and Saturday, I think we've established that the floor for everyone except UConn is that they could get beat in the first round, right? Those matchups are mm-hmm. at least, there's at least a path enough for their opponent that we could see them going one and done. So we've established the floors all, all across there. So the questions we're going to have to answer here on these matchups or for these teams are, what are the ceilings for Marquette, Creighton, Nova, and UConn? And then we can establish what the floor is for UConn as well. Like where are they, where, where do they first run into a matchup where you're like, oh, you know, one that makes you go, that could be intriguing. Let's start with Marquette. This one feels like the easiest one. The, obviously, we we both established earlier that they're they have more ways to win the South Florida matchup, so it wouldn't surprise either of us if they get through that. 
even in relatively comfortable fashion, because like we said, they have more ways. They've proven they have more ways to, to win a basketball game based on styles. They're not beating South Carolina, are they? There's not really a path. Barring like something absolutely insane. Yeah, no, they're not. So I think their ceiling is they get to that second game. Yeah. I guess you could say their it's ceiling less is than they one, don't... It's less than 1%, <laughs> right. right? Like it's not even... Yeah. yeah. Their ceiling is maybe they don't get embarrassed in that second game and like okay. they hang around for a while. But um, yeah, I don't see a path for them to beat South Carolina unless... I, 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 there, there's just no path, I don't think. Yeah, because you think about the... I mean... Bree Beal is going to lock up or going to make things really tough on Jordan King, right? Mm-hmm. And Chloe Murata is going to have – Chloe Murata and uh, Kennedy Miles are going to have their hands full with Cardoza, who I think is probably – honestly, Cardoza's had probably the best season for South Carolina. It doesn't get mm-hmm. talked about enough. And then you have the perennial – the reigning player of the year in, in Aaliyah Boston and probably the top pick in the WNBA draft coming up. That's, that's a nightmare matchup for Marquette, right? Because South Carolina can – do what Marquette does dramatically better than what than Marquette does it, right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of think outscored them in the pay forty eight to eight in the Big East yeah. tournament. Like this could be worse than that. This easily, could be worse. So hundred <laughs> percent. Um. So yeah, the ceiling there for Marquette is like, uh, you won an NCAA tournament game. You know, the rest of it's the rest. The rest of it's, the rest of it's house money. Yeah. Uh, Creighton. <laughs> Creighton's an interesting one. Maybe we should do this one last, but let's just do it now because it's 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 there. No Olivia Miles for Notre Dame is massive. I I know they did win, they did beat NC State without her. I I don't want to like ultimately say that Notre Dame's got no chance of getting out of their own region when they're hosting, but I feel like that first game without a star is is as hard on your opponent as it is on you because they just don't know what you look like on film without that player yet. So I'm not saying Notre Dame got lucky there, but in terms of putting together a game plan that can be successful, I think there's more advantages for Notre Dame than there were for NC State in that matchup because NC State had more of just like, what do we do here? Questions to answer. And the the Notre Dame-Louisville matchup was very intriguing because you – <laughs> she cringed oh, really? uh, <laughs> yeah we'll probably do an audio but her face was well um you know notre dame and louisville like they notre dame beat them twice during the regular season and then the one matchup they got without olivia miles when louisville actually had time to repair for what a notre dame team looks like without olivia miles it was ugly ugly not even not competitive for a minute so notre dame ceiling let's just be honest is dramatically lower without her i mean she is a quadruple level threat. She she can win games defensively. She can rebound her position extremely well. She's the head of the snake for that offense. She can beat you scoring. She can beat you facilitating. She might be one of the most important players in the country when you look at the load she carries for Notre Dame. So it their ceiling is lower. I'm not saying they can't get out of this region yet, but when you think about the ceiling for Creighton and way everything lines up, it doesn't it wouldn't take a a whole lot more than what they pulled off last year to get back to an Elite Eight matchup versus South Carolina, would it? No, I think the the Elite Eight is their ceiling because, like we said, South Carolina is there. But, (laughs) um, yeah, I think there's there's a potential for that. I like their path to at least a Sweet 16 with Olivia Miles being out. I know they beat NC State. I think NC State didn't have Diamond Johnson in that game, though, either. If I'm yeah, true. That's correct. So it's not a very good NC State team without Diamond Johnson either. Mm -hmm. So... 
I don't take much stock in that win. And like you said, the Louisville game, just ugly. What did they score? 38 points? Yes. You only score yeah. 38 points against Creighton, even if they don't shoot the ball well, Creighton's going to win. Um, so, I mean, Louisville's defense is good, but at the same time, I think Notre Dame's offense without her and now, you know, they already didn't have Dara Mabry. They just are really struggling to find a way mm-hmm. to score the ball. Mm-hmm. Um. So for Creighton, I think the tougher game is you got to get through that first round, get through Mississippi State, but then yeah, the Irish are at home, but I guess they just don't really have it without Olivia Miles. So I think yeah. you've got a, a nice path there to the Sweet 16. And then the League 8, Maryland is so up and down. It's so hard mm-hmm. to like say, like there's a chance to win that game. I think there's definitely yeah. a chance to win that game, but it depends what version of Maryland arrives at that game. True. I also think that Maryland struggles with teams that play the way Creighton does. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think, I think when I look at the way that I, I'm not saying Maryland couldn't absolutely roll that game because the mm-hmm. they are they are playing at a really high level right now. But when I look at a matchup standpoint, I think Mississippi State is the matchup of Creighton's potential path to a rematch with South Carolina. That is just enough of a polar opposite that you could feel like Creighton's going to be most uncomfortable in that game until of any game they might potentially play before they get to the Elite Eight, right? And that's kind of why we see their ceiling as Elite Eight versus South Carolina because the matchups, should they get by Mississippi State, get a little bit more to the point where they can be in their comfort zone for most of those games, don't you think? Yeah, that's fair. I think they can play their style against Maryland and you know, maybe find success. Um, I would say my like most likely prediction of where they end is the Sweet 16. Like I still sure. think the level Maryland's playing at right now, they're probably going to win that game. But mm-hmm. the ceiling is the Elite Eight. So I'm just curious, based on what you just said there, where's Creighton's floor then? I think it's losing to Mississippi State, and losing. that's not necessarily – a bad thing because like I think Mississippi yeah. State is a good team. It's like not a bad loss, but mm-hmm. I think that's the floor. Yeah, because it's funny because I think if they beat Mississippi State, it's almost like yeah. the Sweet 16 game is harder than the second round game, even though the second round game is a true roadie, don't you think? Based on <laughs> Yeah, I think I kind of think whoever comes out of Creighton Mississippi State is who's going to the Sweet 16. Yeah, I think either yeah. of those teams can beat this Notre Dame team. For sure. I th- I agree with that. Uh, let's do UConn last, just because you know you're you're the guest and you're the UConn expert. We'll let you tee off on your uh, ex- area of expertise last. Villanova, we've established that that their floor is potentially losing to Cleveland State based on how Cleveland State is is put together. Where is Nova's ceiling? Because man, if I when I look at that Washington, I mean FGCU. First of all, Florida Golf Course is a team that you don't want to mess with every single year. They're capable of knocking you off. They're one of those like consistent mid-major programs that always has good seasons and that is always a tough out in the tournament. And then Washington State is rolling and they start like they start and they start three kids six two or bigger and they have the ability to play six, you know, they have another six four kid off the bench. Like that's a scary matchup for Nova in that regard alone. So I, I I'm not hundred percent sure they they have the easiest path to get out of their own region. I'm I, could argue they have the toughest outside of maybe Notre Dame to get out of their own home gym into the second weekend. Um, where's their ceiling at? Because like you, you, you just look at their path all the way to 
all the way to uh, the final four, essentially. And it doesn't seem like if they get out of the fin, out of that first weekend, that they're going to be too uncomfortable. Like we talked about with Creighton, like I think Nova can play their style all the way through the, to the final four. Like, how do you feel about Nova's ceiling? Yeah, I think I am higher than Villanova on the average person, but I, I think their ceiling is the final four. I don't know that they're going to get there, but I think I can see a path where they could get there in this bracket. Um, and I think part of that's like they got a good draw in the terms of like Indiana is going to be the hardest team to get through, I think. But I like mm. how they match up with Indiana. And if you can get that win, then I think I like their chances to get to the final four. But like you said, I think they've got a really tough set of teams at home too. So like there's a world where they don't get out of that grouping. But like I said with the Cleveland State game, I still kind of feel similarly about Florida Gulf Coast and Washington State. I still think Maddie is probably enough to get them out of that home group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it wouldn't shock me if they got to – the final four so i guess in some ways i'm 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 almost arguing with myself on this one or contradicting <laughs> myself a little bit but i also don't i don't know if i think their ceiling is better than indiana cuz i think if i just go up and down like i think mackenzie holmes and maddie segris is a wash cuz i think mackenzie holmes is in now maddie's had a larger body of work like she's done this for multiple years so maybe i'm being a little bit unfair there and i probably should give her the edge in that matchup like in terms of like who do we need the ball to get to and how effective are they at scoring when they get the ball there. But like the rest of it, like I, I love I love Garzone for Indiana. I think she's an elite. I think she's gonna be a special player of the year type oh, of yeah. player as her career goes on. Uh you know, and, and I think having Grace Berger back, I mean she's I think they that's a dramatic matchup advantage for Indiana there. Um I don't know if I love Nova's ceiling more than I like past the, what I guess they would meet in the sweet 16. I think that, I think for some reason I just love in though. I I think Indiana's depth of talent is better than Nova's. Once you get past Maddie Holmes or Tigris Holmes that I feel like Indiana's got that one, but I, but I also could argue with myself. I could also see Villanova <laughs> winning that matchup if they, you know, if Maddie goes off and, and they limit Holmes because Christina Dalsey is a really good post defender. So, like, she could, you know, she could make things difficult on Holmes more than anyone can make things difficult on Maddie. And that would allow Villanova to get comfortable and have an advantage there. I just, uh, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to cap their ceiling at Sweet 16 for me because I think Indiana's, Indiana's a team that, like I said, I think they have national championship. Yeah. Like, I, I think, think they're put together like a national champion. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think Indiana ceiling is certainly a national champion team, but I think I've spent a lot of time on this like Nova Indiana matchup. But have you really? The thing that yeah, <laughs> well, I have Nova going to the final four in my bracket because I needed to have oh. at least like one right. hot take in there, so that's the yeah. one I went with. Um, but the thing that stands out to me is Nova or not Nova. Um, Indiana has really struggled with like guarding star players this season. I mean, Kim Clark is obviously her yeah. own right, but like they have had a really hard time on her. They've had a hard time on Diamond Miller. They've had a hard time on um, Lila 
or what's on Leah Brown from Michigan scored 30 mm-hmm. on them in this year. There's a girl yeah. from Vermont that put up 19 on them. Like <laughs> they've really struggled with living. And they just they just struggle with <laughs> Chloe Mc oh what's what's her Chloe McMahon from um Ohio State freshman of the year in the yep. Big Ten. They struggle with her. Yep. 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 So they've really struggled with the star players, which I think bodes well for Maddie being able to have a very good night beyond the fact that I just don't really see anyone that on that team that has a great matchup for guarding Maddie. I think it's going to be Mackenzie Holmes that draws the assignment, but she's not necessarily a great, you know, perimeter defender. So I think yeah. that's what makes Maddie so hard to guard and like UConn does it really well, but there's not many other teams in the country that are set up to do that. Well. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, things have to go right for Nova in that matchup for them to win. Like, they need Dulcie mm-hmm. to stay on the floor and not get in foul trouble. They need Lucy Olsen to score. And they probably need Maddie Burke to also hit a couple threes. But, like, those mm-hmm. are all things that can happen. So, yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I see the path for them to get there. And then the other half of that region doesn't scare me. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so this is the intriguing question for you, then, Because you have to establish two things that have not been established yet. One UConn's floor. When's the first game? When's the fr- when's the first game where you go? Hmm, I could see, I could see better than a forty percent chance where they where they go home on this one. I think we've already established their ceiling. They can win the whole thing, right? Like especially with AZ back mm-hmm. and the way that first South Carolina matchup went down. When you look at, I mean Virginia Tech's on a roll right now, but. I don't like. I, I don't think they're beating full strength to UConn or as full strength as UConn's going to be this year. Um, so, in my opinion, like of the one seeds who don't belong on that line instead of UConn, I think Virginia Tech is definitely one I can take off. Uh, so, I think the ceiling's an easy, easy answer. We think UConn can win the national championship, right? So, the question we're going to have to talk about here as we wrap up is where are there? Where is their floor? Where's the first matchup? as we go through this bracket of potential possibilities where we feel like this is maybe a game where UConn has to, has to execute at a high level in the last five minutes of the game to pull it out. Yeah. I think as you, salty as UConn might be about being the two seed, they got a really nice draw in general sure. here sure. in terms yeah. of their path to getting to the final four. I know a lot of people are looking at that potential Ohio state matchup. Is that like, First one, I just I don't see that personally. I just I know they they they're pressed and UConn has the turnover problem, mm-hmm. but Ohio State's post defense is so bad. Like it, I don't think there's a word for how bad it is. Sure. And I think even if UConn turned the ball over twenty times, like the way that Leah Edwards and Dorky Uhas are going to be able to impose their will in the lane is going to be enough to overcome that. So like, I don't think there's like a, you know, a more than 40% chance that they would lose that game. I feel like it feels like the elite eight is kind of like their floor, which maybe is bold to say, I don't know, but mm-hmm. I just, I don't see a team on the bottom portion of that region, assuming they're playing the way, you know, they don't return to playing like they were in the end of February, because well, we all know that their floor is probably losing in the second round, but <laughs> <laughs> assuming yeah. that they play the way we expect them to play i think the elite eight feels like the floor yeah here's the thing that's interesting about this tournament now is like i don't think we're i think we are at a point where especially because we saw we've seen we saw it last year with creighton and iowa and uh south dakota and baylor mm-hmm. I think we're past the point or i think we're at the point now where we where we shouldn't take for granted 
those top eight seeds penciling into the Sweet 16 as much as we would in years past. So that's the one where I'm at least open to the idea that any of these two seeds could go, could not make it out of the first weekend. The thing that I, the reason I'm pushing UConn past that point is I think they're a one seed. I think they're one of the, not only are they a one seed, I think they should have been one of the top two or three seeds in this tournament based on the what they've done this year. The fact that they've been so hurt and they still racked up the the resume they did is crazy impressive to me. Now you throw AZ FUD back into the mix. It just feels like they're not it feels like they're underseated as a two, which is weird because you don't usually yeah. get people on the two line that feel underseated. It usually feels like you're there for a reason and that there's anybody who can be in that spot as well in that top eight. But UConn feels underseated to me. And I think that makes them really dangerous because that first weekend for a two seed, I think, is a little bit easier. Um, when you look at Baylor and Alabama, who have been really up and down, and and honestly, from Baylor and Alabama standpoint, they don't they haven't really beaten anybody that's as good as UConn this year. So they don't really have the the level of belief they're going to need to win that matchup at Gamble. You know what I mean? They're going to have to go through some stuff they haven't experienced yet together to pull out a win there. And I don't see it. However, yeah. I'm gonna. This is where I'm gonna push back because actually, I don't think this is much of a hot take, but I do see Ohio State playing at a high enough level to reach that forty percent threshold for me, where I feel like, yeah. yeah, that's that's a team where I could see UConn having to having to like lock in in the last five minutes and put that thing away because I think they have enough weapons and enough firepower that if they're if they get enough of them clicking. And if just one or two of UConn's are below their normal averages, it's going to be a game. And especially when you take it to a neutral floor, you know what I mean? That's the other part of it that changes the dynamic for me. If it was at Gamble, I wouldn't even – or if it was at Gamble, if it was in Hartford, I wouldn't even think twice, right? Yeah. But if it's in, but it's all the way across the country, um, I think, you you, you know, I, I fully expect UConn to still have that following because UConn fans are just absolutely fanatical. <laughs> I've seen it in Omaha. Like I've I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, it feels like a Hollywood tour, but <laughs> um, I do see Ohio State having the ability to knock off UConn in the Sweet Sixteen. So I think that's where I'm putting them floor because I think I have enough reasons to believe Ohio State can pull it off. Do I? When they if they do match up with each other, do I think that they will? No, but I do see that as where I'm putting UConn's floor. Like. If, if they lost to Ohio State, would I consider that a shocker? I don't think I could. I don't think I would, it would shock me in my life. I actually think that if if I actually think Ohio State, as I look up and down this the the region they're in, the Seattle three, I think Ohio State might be the toughest matchup for UConn in this in that region. So I think that I think I like the way they match up with Virginia Tech because Virginia Tech's advantages where where they're really good is where UConn is also really good right you know what i mean ohio state's the one team that can kind of do things a little bit differently and and win in different ways that it makes it a little bit of a stylistic battle as opposed to you know down the line who's going to be better at what you know that's kind of how i feel about it yeah that's fair i can i can see a world where ohio state beats them i just don't think it's a, a very likely world that they sure. have to be really really play basically a near perfect game in order to do it yeah. um i think to me the team in this region that you can probably could have the toughest time and i know they already beat them on the road by 15 is tennessee i think tennessee has 
turn yeah, a bit really? of a corner. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the like the match the combination of Horston and Jackson is is really difficult to guard for any team. But I mean, even UConn that has, I think, a good matchup for at least one of them in Leah Edwards. Like they need Aubrey Griffin to be really good in order to contain mm. both of them. And it's really difficult. That's not that's not a bad that's not a bad call. The the one thing I struggle with 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 like making Tennessee my team that gives UConn a problem is UConn basically blew them out twice on their home floor. Like they blew them out in the first half and then the officiating got a little wonky and it made it again yeah. and then they blew them out again. I, so and that's and again that was with a UConn team that wasn't I don't did they have your charm for that one? I don't remember if they did. I don't no, know. it was their no. It was when they were playing well though. It was before yeah. the like February skid. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, Desharm and Fudd were still out there. UConn had figured some things out without the, those two, but uh yeah, I don't I don't think Tennessee has I don't think Tennessee like I said, I think Tennessee has to be better at what UConn does really well in order to win that. So yeah, they they have the talent to be to win those matchups, but Man, Leah Edwards has played at such a high level this year. I don't see her losing many matchups, especially not at March's here. He looks like she's been on a mission for a minute and a half. So, um, yeah, that's what that's what made me struggle with picking Tennessee. But I do agree that they certainly do have the makeup to to make um, UConn sweat a little bit. All right, so let's – last thing. I, I forgot one more topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> Outside of the Big East or Big East in general, it doesn't have to be from this league or not. Give me the team as you look at this bracket that you feel like has the opportunity to like be the Creighton and South Dakota of of twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, I guess. Yeah, uh South Dakota State jumps out at me. Is that right? Team? Oh my god. Uh, yeah. I did not know you were gonna say that, but totally, <laughs> right? I think they drew well in that you've got the week one seed in Virginia Tech and then Tennessee, Iowa State, like I, we just talked about why I think Tennessee is really good, but at the same time, like I also wouldn't be shocked if they underperformed in the tournament. And then Iowa State is a really heavy reliance on the three point range. So I think they drew well, but then also they, I know they lost to Creighton earlier in the season, but they haven't lost, I think, since like December 15th now or whatever. And Maya Selland is a really high level player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that could carry them um, too. A sweet 16, maybe an elite eight. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see them reach either of those spots. Um, so that's that's one that stands out to me there. I think the other one that stands out to me is Drake in terms of like they've Jeez, been shooting the, same, the we didn't even rehearse these answers <laughs> yet either. We're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, they've been shooting the ball at a really high level. Louisville, I don't know. I'm not like a big Louisville believer this season. Yeah, they've had you know, they're better than they were at the beginning of the year, but I still don't know that they fully have it together. And their defense is good, and Haley Vinlith is good, but if, if Drake keeps shooting it like they have, I think they could get through Louisville. And then I think Texas is an interesting team, and then in that they could make the Final Four or they could lose in, like, the second round. I Neither would shock me. Yeah. Um, but, again, not the most offensive-minded team. So with Drake shooting, especially, I don't, I think Texas is expecting Sonia Morris back, but I don't know if that's a first weekend thing. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I could see the path there. Well, you're, I'm going to have to go into my uh, third and fourth bank here because I definitely had Drake <laughs> and SDSU as, on my list. So I, I just pairing off of what you said, though, like the thing that makes it really interesting about South Dakota State too is 
they they got through most of that non-con, which was honestly a pretty – I think they would have been an at-large team had they won their league mm-hmm. or not because they did beat Louisville. Uh, you know, they, they, they had a, a marquee win there that would have made mm-hmm. them interesting. And they did all that without Paige Meyer being healthy and Drew Gilton being healthy, the Utah transfer. And then you pair that with the three-point shooting they have on the team in general – on top of the fact that Maya Sellen is one of the most more versatile, underrated players in the country, she can play inside and out. I think they're a really, really dang. I mean, I think they got up to the top ten in the in her hoop stats in offensive rating this mm-hmm. year. So they they've been they've been cooking for a minute now. So I think they're playing at a really high level, and I love the way they potentially match up with the teams that are in their path. I would not be shocked if that's an elite eight matchup between UConn and South Dakota State to go to the final four. It would not shock me at all. And then, yeah, I do agree with you with Drake because, like, I look at the way they potentially match up with Louisville, first of all, and then potentially Texas. And then, you know, I don't think that they're going to beat Stanford, but they certainly have the firepower to make things tough because Stanford's a team that struggles to score. Uh, you know, they, they, they played a lot of games in the 50s this year. And if you catch Stanford on a day where they're just not feeling it, and they're not flowing offensively, and they're really struggling to manufacture points, and Drake's on, that could be an intriguing matchup. So, yeah, I, I'm to be boring. I'm, I'm, I did have South Dakota State and Drake as well. <laughs> I think the one here, a team, if I'm picking a team that's maybe top five uh, seed lines that I don't think maybe is getting enough of the pub that maybe they deserve for how they're built as a team and what they're capable of on the high end of things. If they catch some of that March madness, March magic and go on a run. I do kind of like Washington state. I do think that's a tough, that's going to be a tough out for everyone, for everyone they face. And I could see them beating everyone in their region and that Greenville two all the way to a final four and potentially matching up like not all that, uh, not all that poorly with the UConn team based on the size they have, like the depth of size they have, I guess I should say. So that's the kind of a team that I feel like is being slept on a little bit that not a lot of people had better picking to go on a deep run because they have to go through Nova because they have to go through Indiana. Who's probably going to be, those are probably two of the trendier final four picks out of that region. And then you also have Utah. I don't think Washington state's getting enough love. If we're, if I have to go down to the, uh, those top five seed lines a little bit. I think of the teams that are in that range, they're the most intriguing to me a little bit. Yeah. Other to me, yeah. yeah. Um, Washington state. I feel like I just have this feeling like you remember Kentucky last year, like went on that miracle run in the sec beat South Carolina and then like flamed yeah, out in the first okay. round against Princeton. Gonna... And that's kind of, especially cause they got a really tough draw with like a really good Florida Gulf oh, yeah. Coast team that once again, oh, yeah. does not deserve to be a 12 seed with their 32 wins. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the path that I'm seeing for Washington state in this tournament. Yeah. No, certainly wouldn't shock me either. That's like their floor is one and done for sure. Like that's yeah. that's the other part of it too. Yeah, I didn't think about the Kentucky comparison, but that's a pretty good one. I just think Washington State, yeah. I mean, they've proven they can beat they've proven they not only can beat the elite of the elite in the Pac twelve, but mm-hmm. you know, they also whipped South Dakota pretty South Dakota State pretty badly earlier this season too. So, you know, they've already smacked a team that we both think has a potential to surprise some people this year in the tournament. So yeah, that's that's kind of why I think 
they might be a surprise team. Um, yeah, yeah, and Charlie Sprague, Ledger Walker too, is a great player. I saw her play yes. person at UCLA earlier this year, and yeah, she's a joy to watch and kind of player that can carry them through a couple matchups. But I don't know. They they got a really bad draw too. Yes, they got, tough, they got a tough. They got tough. Twelve sure. for sure, for sure, hundred <laughs> percent. All right, tournament as a whole, how do you feel about this draft unit? You know, and the women's game in general, the health of it. Because I think, I don't know, I don't think we're, I think we're going to see more of what we saw last year with, you know, double digit seeds making it through. And I know the, the dynamic with the women's game still, the rub is still that you have to win. You, you have to find a way as a double digit seed to win on someone else's home floor. And that's kind of always going to be a big hurdle to climb. But I don't know, man. It just feels like this. It feels like the game is really, really catching up to the drama we see on the men's side at a at a faster rate than I think people are processing in their minds. Like they I think they still think when they look at the women's bracket, talk the safe bet at the end of the day. But I, it just wouldn't shock me to see more craziness like we saw last year. I don't know what it looks like, but it wouldn't shock me to see it. Cause I think there's there are double digit seeds out there that would have the potential to get hot and beat teams that are, that are projected to go far and potentially make the final four. Don't you think? Yeah, I agree with it. Um, I think we're going to see a couple of double digit seeds in the sweet 16 again this year, like we saw last year, maybe even the elite eight, if things get very crazy. I'm not like, I, don't mind that like the the top seeds host in the women's tournament because I think it creates better environments for the games and 100%. like I think Creighton pro, yeah. pro proved last year that you can go and do Carver Hawkeye one of the hardest places probably in the country to play and pull mm-hmm. off that upset so um I don't hate it and I think it also like it does protect your top seeds a little bit but I think that creates sometimes better basketball later in March too um but I still think we're going to see chaos. To me, I feel like you kind of know South Carolina is going to come out of the Greenville 1 region. I also kind of feel pretty confident that UConn's going to come out of Seattle 3. But when mm-hmm. you look at like Greenville 2 and Seattle 4, nah, I couldn't tell you who's going to come out of them. I, I feel yeah. pretty good about Indiana, but I still think there could be some chaos there. And then Seattle 4, you could tell me Middle Tennessee comes out of that region and I'll be like, okay. <laughs> Seattle four, good old Seattle four has got a few teams in there, huh? Yeah, I, I, I do like I do like the the regions this year too, being a little bit less. Yeah, I don't know, like feeling like home court or two for some of these programs, right? I just think I think that's where it gets interesting. I do agree with you though that like I I don't hate the first uh, weekend being on home floors and stuff like that. I think I I actually wouldn't hate it on the men's side either because I think the, mm-hmm. the, the environments would be a lot better than they are. Um, the men's side just has so much money invested in it now that it's hard to revert back to that. Yeah. But I think the one thing that, the one point that you make that's really sound is it wouldn't, it's not going to be, South Carolina is the runaway prohibitive favorite to win this national championship, right? So from a, from that standpoint, I, I understand that people that there's an argument out there like, yeah, well, we already know who's going to win, so the drama isn't as profound, right? But I don't know, man. I think the, the rest of the, the, way, the way you look at the rest of the tournament uh, and the way it shakes out is it's got 
it's got the recipes for madness, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as much drama as we see on the men's side, despite there being a, you know, a team in South Carolina who's probably historically dominant. Like maybe we're seeing the end of that. Like maybe South Carolina is the last team that's going to put together a three-year run where you just think, or a two-year, three-year run where you just think you'd be shocked if they don't win the national championship, basically, which is what these last two years have represented for them because they've they've scheduled tough. They've beaten everybody. They've played mm-hmm. multiple times. They are as battle-tested as, as any reigning national champ would ever be on the men's side because of the way they schedule. And the way, honestly, the way the women's schedule in general is better than the men's side too, because you don't see, you don't see a lot of Q four, Q four double digit, you know, win totals on the women's side. But the rest of the tournament, I think, shakes up for for it being some really compelling matchups because you, where you don't necessarily have a foregone conclusion of who's going to come out of that. You know, we're in like maybe six, seven years ago, it was fifty point. 50, 40, 40, and 50 point games up until you got to the Elite Eight and Final Four. I think we're way past that point. And it's kind of it's fun to see how quickly that's that's gone away, don't you think? Yeah, I think it, it's been fun. And I think that's partially like a lot of the investment in the women's game from uh, across all these schools. The talent is starting to get more spread out. Um, I mean, at IL, I think it's helping the women's game in a Oh, incredible way. I think there's some actually some hinting that Aaliyah Boston might be coming back for her fifth year, which would be oh boy. wild. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's happening, but there's definitely some some mutter on Twitter about that today. So we'll mm-hmm. see. But um yeah, I think we've just seen a big shift very quickly in the women's game, and it's very exciting. And you're gonna see the chaos in those first few rounds. And like South Carolina probably will win it all. I think it, I wouldn't be shocked to see anyone, South Carolina, Indiana, UConn, Stanford win it all. Those are probably the four teams I think realistically could could win a title. But mm-hmm. I, I still think that we're going to see a lot of the the madness of March and the rest of what happens. Yep. So, yeah, let's, that's, that's about all we got. I think we've talked enough on the Big East there. Uh, <laughs> one, just to give people a snapshot in time, St. John's is actually up six at halftime on Purdue. So, uh the Big East is at least off to a good start as we wrap this pod up. I don't know what's going to transpire the rest of the way. <laughs> but as you listen to this right now, it's currently trending up. Um, yeah, Megan Gower, thank you for hopping on and devoting a lot of your time. I know there's you've been making the rounds um, because of your because of the work you do. Uh, and you're a great follow, so everybody should check her out. What's your at on Twitter again? At so Megan Gower. So just my name, at Megan Gower. Gotcha. Yeah, make sure you're following her. Uh, she's got a sub stack. She usually tweets from the Her Hoops Stats account. So make sure you're following all of that because she does great work covering not only UConn, but the entire sport. And I really appreciate your time hopping on here and breaking down the league and the tournament and, you know, just giving people a little bit of insight into what this tournament might look like. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's not many things I enjoy talking about more than Big East basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Me too, unfortunately. It's my life. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Sokol Snipers podcast. Uh, appreciate you guys supporting it all year and following along. Uh, first year of the Women's Hoops pod, but definitely not the last. So I uh, appreciate you guys, your support and your questions and your feedback. And yeah, it's March Madness time. So everybody, enjoy it. Take care.